The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What it could do is it could actually stitch it together in such a way that it produces something that is word for word exactly what's in its training corpus. Right? So in other words, what ChatGPT is at some level, if we're being very formalistic about it, ChatGPT is the author, right? Because it's constructed this, but the exact same information word for word lives in its training data. And I think that courts would be reluctant for both kind of substantive and formalistic reasons to impose liability there. The the substantive one is that actually it's it's not really engaging in any greater harm than already exists in the training data, right? That that sort of bad information is in is in the training data, and, and the formalistic one is that we actually are going to have a good deal of difficulty proving that ChatGPT, at least its current versions, created that piece by piece rather than just pulling it wholesale from its its sort of training data. I'm Alan Rosenstein, associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota and senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast for June twenty third, two thousand twenty three. As large language models like ChatGPT play an increasingly important role in our society, there will no doubt be examples of them causing harm. Lawsuits have already been filed in cases where LLMs have made false statements about people, but what about run-of-the-mill negligence cases? What happens when an LLM provides faulty medical advice or causes extreme emotional distress? A forthcoming symposium in the Journal of Free Speech Law tackles these questions, and I spoke with three of the symposium's contributors at the University of Arizona and the University of Florida law professors Jane Bambauer and Derek Bambauer, and computer scientist Mihai Serdinu. Jane's paper focuses on what it means for an LLM to breach its duty of care, and Derek and Mihai explore under what conditions the output of LLMs may be shielded from liability by that all-important internet statute, Section 230. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 23, Large Language Negligence. So, Jane, I'd like to start our conversation uh, with you and, and your very interesting paper about the question of LLM negligence liability and what are the legal complications that go into that. But before we get into the LLM question, can you just remind us, maybe those of us who uh, haven't thought about negligence since 1L year, or maybe those of us who uh, uh, are not lawyers but nevertheless listen to the, the Lawfare podcast for our sins, just can you remind us what what are sort of the, the canonical elements of negligence before we dive into how they apply in the LLM context. Okay, good. Yes. So I'll describe the elements and then I'm going to give a motivational um, hypothetical that will, I think, help us guide the rest of the discussion. Okay. So the four elements of negligence, which anyone who went to law school really should remember are duty, 
breach causation, which has two types of causation that you have to prove, both factual causation and proximate causation and damages. Uh, so uh, let me give an example that might play out in the era that we live in. Suppose somebody asked ChatGPT if a particular type of mushroom was toxic or poisonous. Uh, I'll explain later why I'm picking this example, but but uh, and suppose that uh, given the, and and this is not really uh, hard to fathom. Suppose that because of the nature of how how large language models work, um, it put together an answer saying that the the that the mushroom was edible when in fact it was not edible. It's toxic, and then further suppose that the user of ChatGPT trusted that response enough to either eat the mushroom himself or maybe feed it to a child if you really want to get the sympathies going. Okay, so so normally if someone were going to try to, you know, if someone was injured and suffered some some damages and they wanted to sue someone and to get recourse, an open AI would be probably an attractive defendant, you know, a nice deep pocket to go after. Uh, and so they'd be looking at these four elements, duty, breach, causation, damages. Okay, damages I've already just assumed happened. Someone got hurt, right? Breach and causation have their own interesting issues. For breach, it's not clear since we're just at the beginning of the era of this, you know, um, highly uh, user-friendly AI, what it means to be a reasonable AI producer I I sketch out some thoughts in my paper. Like I, I do think that we should use something that's like a products liability uh, design defect standard where you can't just say something went wrong. That's not enough. You need to, as a plaintiff, you need to say what alternative um, design or model could have done a better job. Um, but But it's not really clear actually how courts will treat breach. So that's just an open question. Factual causation, I think, will be fairly straightforward for a, for a plaintiff in this style of case to prove. Proximate causation will also, I think, be easy to prove because for the most part, what courts look at is whether a accident of this sort is foreseeable. Ex ante, you know, at the, at the time that the product was released, was it foreseeable, but that something like this might happen. And, and, and yes, it, it is. I mean, that's kind of the the problem. That's the interesting nature of this is that there's no way really to avoid all possible uh, negligent uh, LLM speech. And, and yet uh, it's not clear whether there should be liability. And so that takes us to duty. And that duty is the element that is kind of the gatekeeping policy element for courts, where they decide whether we should even contemplate at all and spend judicial resources at all allowing a plaintiff into court to, to try to prove the rest of the elements. So let, let me, before we get into duty, let, let me actually go back to this question of, of breach and what it means to be a responsible producer of large language models, right? So, so you, you mentioned the, the products liability model, you know, this reminds me a little bit, uh, your, our colleague, Eugene Volokh, who has written about uh, these issues in the defamation context, he came on the Lawfare podcast a, a few weeks ago to talk about how he thinks through it. And discussion we had was you know, whether or not courts will or should be particularly conservative, small c conservative, even in imposing liability on this new technology under something like a design defect theory, given that it's very new that the potential benefits of this technology are 
I mean, world historical, but potential, right? It may all go terribly wrong. Um, at some point, we'll all be talking to our lo- robot overlords about wh- which way it, it went. Um, but it could be a very uh, positive thing for society. And therefore, because of that, you know, court should not treat LLMs like, you know, a toaster oven that caught on fire. And in particular, they should err on the side of a light touch liability regime um, so that these things are not sort of strangled in their infancy. Yeah. Okay. I, I completely agree with that. So let me explain that I think we're using different baselines. I think we're at real risk of regulators coming in and basically imposing strict liability. <laughs> so Eugene might be imagining a, ba- a possible baseline of, you know, light touch regulation or not, you know, non-responsive courts, uh, you know, the tort law not covering, you know, moving gingerly. I, I could see just the opposite, that if someone is harmed, and there's any possible, you know, any possible link to an AI model that then, you know, the anxiety of the of the whole society, you know, brought through juries and judges uh, would want to impose liability and find a way to do so. So, so when I talk about the product liability model, the design defect model, I use it as as a means to get some conservatism in because the plaintiff has to prove what. In, rea- in real life, a company at this stage of development could do as an alternative that would have not only reduced the risk of this kind of accident, but would have also avoided other types, you know, other types of accidents. But, but I think the larger point, and maybe this is why I'm interested in focusing on duty, is that I think one of the functions that duty serves is precisely this conservatism, that it's really hard to understand even how to gauge breach, you know, what it means to be a good AI developer at this early stage. Um, and duty might be a good way to, um, to foreclose that analysis right now for basically what, what are public policy reasons. I want to jump in as, as someone who, who sort of is a middle ground between uh, Mihai and Jane in that I know uh, relatively little about uh, either products liability or software. But um, one of the things that I think is difficult about the products liability model in software is that there have been a lot of proposals, and, and some are being mooted right now, actually, in the Biden administration's discussion about imposing a uh, liability regime for software as a means of getting a higher quality software, is that, uh, I, I think really for two reasons. One is that the the sort of universe of alternative designs is extraordinarily large, if not nearly infinite, for software. We could always design it differently. We could use a different programming language. We could use different structures. And it might be negligent simply to use a large language model design at all to answer questions. And we could inevitably object to things like the corpus of training data, the particular, uh, for example, uh, NLI model used to do these things. And so I think that even if ultimately those claims were to be unsuccessful when tried in court, the the mere transaction costs of of suit are are very, very high. And it also requires courts to venture into a domain in which they are even less expert than average. We have a lot of experience with things like toasters and cars and even to a certain degree airplanes, but we have the average person has very little experience with the actual construction design of software. Most people can't even write code. And so uh, I'm not sure where this would fit into the tort analysis. And Jane seems to think that perhaps duty does the work. But I think that the adoption of something like the product liability model runs a real risk of essentially strangling this in the crib 
And so uh, that's, I think, part of what makes me nervous about something like the product liability model or the building code standard is that we are um, we are very likely to lose the potential benefits. You know, it doesn't really matter if we have Dolly that's drawing pictures of, of you know um, horses or bananas, but that they're. I don't know. Be- I, I I love those images. Those those make me very happy, Derek. They're pretty good. As someone who's a longtime Lolcat fan, I, I can't wait to sort of test these things out. But it, it strikes me that there actually are some genuinely good uses, and one that's underappreciated is most of us have to deal with uh, corporate software systems where you need to submit your time, or you need to approve time, or you have to submit your annual report. Uh, they're almost impossible to figure out because they're, they're based on really sort of bad backend systems. And it strikes me that something like a ChatGPT model would be wonderful for actually being able to guide you through, right, as sort of much more interactive and, and user-friendly interface. And that's something that I don't want to give up in these these early stages of development. So I think I'm on board with the idea that even if we eventually do get to, you know, a much more sort of bounded domain of choices in the AI space that, um, or that even just the chat GPT space, that we ought to be quite cautious in, in moving forward with that particular model. I really like the discussion of the toaster analogy in the context of product liability, because in, in many ways, a language model is the opposite of that. In, in other words, we can understand how a toaster works 100%. We can define what it is. We can define how it's supposed to work. And that means we can define a product liability around the toaster. But we don't really understand how a language model learns. We understand the algorithms behind it. But the input data covers billions of web pages by now, and nobody's going to read all those pages. And those web pages are aggregated into hundreds of billions of parameters. And obviously, nobody understands you know, how, you know, what those mean. So really, there's no definition of what the language model is supposed to do exactly. So defining a product liability in that context, I think is, it's going to be extremely tricky. Well, I, I don't know that we need to define what it should be doing. Uh, the courts could. I, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm a little bit maybe less cautious than others on, the, on this podcast about allowing the courts eventually to define which types of designs are bad because we know of alternatives. I mean, so if for some reason OpenAI decided to you know, release a, a new version of ChatGPT that only uses Reddit or like the, 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 you know, is trained on only the worst possible data sources. I think we could, without understanding exactly precisely what went wrong in any particular case, we could we could point a finger at what went wrong in, in the design stage. Um, and so, uh, so I, I still I want to be clear. I still largely agree with the pessimism and the caution that Derek and, and Mihai are, are sharing here. But it, I think there are, you know, there are bounds to the to, to the area where I think uncertainty should 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 suggest that courts be cautious. So let me turn then to sort of what the the core of the of of your sort of paper is, Jane, and that's this question of of duty. So why do you focus on that, and and what to you is sort of so complex and interesting? And and actually, before we get into that, let me just make sure we're all on the same page here. When we're talking about duty, I, I assume we're talking about chat GPT's duty to a particular person is a little misleading, right? We're talking about open AI's duty as a corporation, right? So, um, you know, I think we have to be very, very careful about not sort of excessively anthropomorphizing chat GPT, though, of course, the law already anthropomorphizes this 
fictitious corporate entity, uh, OpenAI. Why are you focused on OpenAI's duty here and what's so complicated since, you know, we're constantly ascribing duties from corporations to individuals. I mean, that's the whole principle of products liability among other negligence regimes. Yeah, well, I'll have to say even before uh, ChatGPT sort of splashed on the scene, I already thought duty was an interesting topic when the theory of negligence is entirely uh, about the harm that speech can cause. Um, And the courts, I I mean, so even just putting aside all this new technology for a second, the courts are, are not exactly clear about when talking provides enough of a foundation to assign legal responsibility. So there's a famous case that's taught in most, you know, 1L torts casebooks called Yanya, where an owner of a mine invites another neighbor mine, mine owner to come over and he goads him into jumping into this ditch. Uh, and uh, Yania, the plaintiff, winds up drowning for the plaintiff, you know, the, the decedent of the plaintiff's family. And the court decides there's no duty because basically encouraging someone to do something is not really the sort of active, uh, you know, it's not like he was literally pushing Yania off the cliff or the off the edge, it was just a suggestion through talking. Uh, so there, okay, uh, that that rule, I think, makes sense to most of us. Uh, it, it also is totally compatible with cases that are brought against like rap music and stuff. Um, you know, so so um, when, when someone brings a case against a, a, a book or uh, a musician or something that uh, allegedly causes people to behave violently or, or poorly, um, those cases always fail and they fail on duty. I mean, th- there's always a First Amendment analysis as well, but they fail on duty anyways. Um, on the other hand, there are times, so let, let me describe another case. There are times when like, let's say a, someone goes to a shop and they're about to put a, a, a heavy box uh, onto a cart and it's maybe it's like a, a small uh, woman who who is likely to be injured if she tries to carry it. If actually the restatement even describes this case uh, as saying, okay, if a, if a random store patron who's just a stranger and happens to be walking by, if that person says, hey, it's it's light, you can go ahead and carry it. Uh, and the woman trusts what she's heard and goes ahead and tries to carry the box and then injures herself, she can't sue that random store patron. And so this is a little bit more interesting because it's, I mean, it's kind of encouragement in a sense, but it's also just, I mean, it, it's kind of closer to the the mushroom example that, and I think the courts usually think, look, there's no real reason for the, the woman to trust this random stranger. On the other hand, if it's a store employee who says it's light, go ahead and, and put it on, on, on your cart, then this plaintiff might be able to sue the, the, the store or even the employee himself. Okay, so, so the, even though there's no formal, what you might call special relationship in tort law, the court does seem to be using duty to do a little bit of kind of peeking at the elements that come later and basically saying, okay, it makes sense to trust some information that you're receiving and it doesn't make sense to trust other information. And, 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 so, and so that's why, you know, if someone, if I'm reading a blog and someone is wrong on the internet, but I just believe it sort of through blind faith and I, and I go try to eat a mushroom, I'm probably not going to have a good case. So why should I have a good case against open AI? Well, uh, that leads to, you know, these analyses of whether a court will decide it makes sense to trust the output or not. Um, so, so, 
So that's all just to say that duty when the, when the conduct that caused an accident is speaking, it is a very naughty and difficult question. And the reason I use the mushroom uh, hypothetical is because there was a case brought against an, a mushroom encyclopedia that had wrongly stated that there was a type of mushroom that was non-toxic and it did cause harm. And I think we would look at that and we'd say, okay, it was foreseeably caused harm. And the publisher you know, would know, would understand the, the risks involved of, of providing wrong information. And yet the, the court, I think it was the Ninth Circuit, said, no, there's, there's, you can't bring a products liability case. It was in this case um, because the First Amendment completely precludes it. So, so, so if, if, that, if, if courts are generally hesitant to impose duties on even the publishers of encyclopedias, and of course, an encyclopedia, the whole point of an encyclopedia is that it is factual, it seems then that they would probably be even less inclined to impose a duty on something like ChatGPT, which holds itself out as, well, I don't know what it holds itself out as exactly. OpenAI has been very confusing with its messaging, right? Is this uh, is this a, a profound galaxy brain or is it a complete hallucination um, or is it some weird combination of, of the two? So is is your view then that you know a lot of these, a lot of this litigation will just be sort of stillborn as it were because courts will look and say, look, this isn't even an encyclopedia. And so, you know, if we're not going to impose duties on encyclopedias, we're certainly not going to impose duties on whatever the hell this weird toy is. Yeah, I I think that is the most sensible outcome of a typical case. But there are a couple reasons that courts might think differently. And well, I I mean, one reason they might think differently is that there's a lot of anxiety and, and, you know, right now around this particular technology. But even if we assume that that's not there, um, there are cases where if a speaker um, kind of induces listeners to do something bad, and as a result, the the listeners harm a third party, the third party has in some I'd say relatively exceptional cases, but still has sometimes been able to sue the original speaker. So you, you're probably, uh, we're probably all aware of the Snapchat cases that have this type of setup where Snapchat made a speed filter that kind of, you know, foreseeably induced people to drive 100 miles an hour and then wound up, you know, teenagers wound up crashing into people and the victims were able to sue um, Snapchat. Before that, there was a really similar type of case involving like a radio station that did a kind of promo game where people were racing on the streets. I still think that those are exceptions that almost prove the rule, but but courts might think, okay, well, if we have if we have the guy using ChatGPT and then giving the toxic mushroom to you know children or at a party or something, when we have this third party injury, maybe there's something different going on. I'm not sure that it should see it that way, but it might. The other thing, though, is is if you know, OpenAI is careful not to try to raise confidence of the sort that you know, a, like a fiduciary relationship would raise. But but if there are other programs, AI, you know, large language model programs that start providing de- being designed to provide legal advice or medical advice or something, then we are in the special relationships territory, and I think those cases would be seen differently. So we've identified one sort of out of the gate potential issue, uh, which is this issue of, of duty. Um, though there are going to be probably enough of these exceptional cases and some non-exceptional cases in related areas like defamation, uh, where the duty I think is actually m- much, much clearer, that that there will at some point be a prima facie tort claim 
somewhere. Uh, and so then I think it's useful to, to look at what would be sort of additional defenses that companies like OpenAI uh, could raise. And one of them obviously is Section 230, which is the topic of uh, the, the work that you, Derek, and Mihai are working on. So Derek, I'd like to turn to you and can you just give uh, sort of a very, very high level overview of, of sort of Section 230 generally and, and sort of what role it could play in this sort of uh, litigation? And, and then I'll turn to you, Mihai, to talk about how the actual internals of these large language models bears on the legal question. So Section 230 is um, it's actually a small and previously extremely obscure part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which uh, overhauled American telecommunications law for the first time since uh, 1934. And it confronted one of the problems that we're thinking about here. And so the difference between, say, um, an encyclopedia about mushrooms and Wikipedia or ChatGPT is uh, a vital one of scale. And so in the offline, right, in the IRL context, typically if we think about claims like defamation, we have this tripartite division that we have liability in sort of descending order from the speaker or writer, then the publisher, and then the distributor. And so liability is sharpest for the speaker or author and is least sharp for the distributor. And Part of the reason for that is that we think that um, the speaker in some ways has some obligation to make some investigation about the truth or falsity of the particular uh, claims that they're making. And that publishers also are dealing with a relatively limited universe of things, right? So the New York Times only publishes a relatively small number of letters to the editor, even though they're flooded with submissions. And so we think that they can probably engage in some fact checking. The difficulty is that even in 1996, when it's still a world of the walled gardens of AOL and, and CompuServe and Prodigy, is that uh, it's virtually impossible for those entities or for Google or for Facebook to engage in any meaningful moderation. And that seems to leave those firms with Hobson's choice, at least under traditional defamation law and, and, and similar in other tort areas. One is that they could perhaps not do any curation at all, right? They could essentially be distributors. And that seems like it would put them at lower risk, but it means that our online environments are going to be flooded with garbage and worse. On the other hand, if what they do is they actually do pick and choose and they try to, uh, to sort of cull the wheat from the chaff, what happens is that they will not be perfect, right? And so then they will be publishers and they are pushing themselves up the ladder in terms of potential liability. Neither of those seems like great choices. So 19, in 1996, Congress made the decision to actually change radically the way that that tripartite hierarchy works. And so what it effectively does is it eliminates publisher and distributor liability. So liability, except in really unusual cases, only attaches to the speaker. And thus the fight in many cases is who is the speaker? And so in this case, one of the things that's really difficult to think about is when is it that ChatGPT, and I, I'm shorthanding by the way, that I'm just I'm throwing in ChatGPT for open AI, right? This is really a question about open AI, but it's just easier for me to say ChatGPT. So we're going with that. When is it that um, ChatGPT is actually the speaker? And we can imagine uh, several different cases. Case number one is that I ask it a question. I ask about, you know, um, who's Derek Bambauer? 
and it just produces something back that's totally a hallucination, that's not based at all on its training corpus, and it says, uh, Derek Bambauer is a wanted terrorist. I think in that case, if it is something that just emerges, right, has no basis in the information that ChatGPT holds, then ChatGPT, I think, likely is a speaker, right? And so that means that the protections that Section 230 offers, which is to immunize publishers and distributors for the information provided by speakers or authors won't apply because they actually are the author. But I do think that there are a number of other cases where Section 230 looks like a pretty good defense for ChatGPT slash OpenAI. One is where actually it queries and it looks through the data and it finds something that's negative about me and it summarizes it or it compiles it. But what it's actually revealing is something that is, in essence, the speech of someone else, right? It's the speech of the person who produced that particular document or documentation in the training corpus. And that is a classic publisher function. So that seems like an area where ChatGPT should be immunized, at least under traditional Section 230 doctrine. A second sort of stronger version of this is that, uh, as Mihai will explain, even though ChatGPT essentially operates in kind of pastiche fashion, right? It stitches together tiny pieces from many, many different sources in its uh, data. What it could do is it could actually stitch it together in such a way that it produces something that is word for word exactly what's in its training corpus. Right. So in other words, what ChatGPT is at some level, if we're being very formalistic about it, ChatGPT is the author, right? Because it's constructed this, but the exact same information word for word lives in its training data. And I think that courts would be reluctant for both kind of substantive and formalistic reasons to impose liability there. The the substantive one is that actually it's it's not really engaging in any greater harm than already exists in the training data, right? That that sort of bad information is in, is in the training data. And, and the formalistic one is that we actually are going to have a good deal of difficulty proving that ChatGPT, at least its current versions, created that piece by piece rather than just pulling it wholesale from its, its sort of training data. And then the last thing that I think is perhaps the most interesting and would work perhaps the largest substantive shift is ChatGPT, one of the things that Mihai has explained to me is that we can think of it, again, at the peril of anthropomorphization, is that ChatGPT is a pleaser, right? What it really wants to do when you give it a query is it wants to give you back something that's highly responsive and that, that, that you essentially like. And so what it does is it just sort of runs an autocomplete-like function in a way that gives uh, each word is the most probable one to follow the one before. And so it could be that ChatGPT is extraordinarily responsive to user queries, in other words, you can get ChatGPT to tell you different things on essentially the same query if you sort of structure it differently. If you say, tell me about Derek, or if you say, is Derek a bad guy? Uh, is Derek a criminal? If those lead down different paths, then what we have to start thinking about is whether ChatGPT is actually sort of a device that's designed for defamation. And I think this rolls back to Jane's point about if we just trained it on Reddit or sort of like when um, Microsoft put out its bot Tay that was AI and they trained it on Twitter. And so within 24 hours, it became super racist and anti-Semitic and awful because it was trained on Twitter. That seems like something where it, it actually is not a neutral tool, right? At some level, it's, it's kind of designed to produce bad content. But if it's just reading Wikipedia, it seems much more like the neutral tools that courts have um, almost exclusively immunized in terms of uh, Section 230 liability, right? Which is that 
in this sense, the kind of proximate cause, if you will, is actually the user by structuring one particular query rather than another. So this, I should say, is uh, the, the, the applicability of Section 230 is quite controversial. Um, I think uh, that probably Mihai and I may be the few out there who have taken this position. But one thing that I think may push in our direction that I regard as kind of a negative development, but that that's quite recent, is that there's been bipartisan legislation introduced, I believe in the Senate, that would actually remove ChatGPT's Section 230 immunity. So it would make it explicit that ChatGPT is not eligible. And that to me suggests that uh, the, the sort of inverse of that is, well, there's at least some thinking that it is currently eligible for Section 230. So um, I think that descriptively, at least, and I'll, I'll leave the sort of normative piece aside, this kind of, you know, sort of increasingly old provision that sort of took place when the internet was, was still in its, its extremely formative years offers significant potential to shield things like ChatGPT and um, also is going to force courts to engage in a lot more nuanced analysis, including thinking harder about the user's role in defamation. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So I, I want to ask a, a follow-up before I, I turn to Mihai to talk about sort of the the guts of these systems. And that is, you know, it strikes me that when courts are applying existing laws and existing doctrine to new facts, I mean, they're doing it in a very practical way, right? They are basically trying to do sort of the least amount of precedential analogizing necessary to make the case go away. Uh, and, and that courts will probably not want to engage in either too much um, sort of metaphysical or, on the other hand, computer science analysis of these uh, models because it's kind of not their job. And if that's the posture, it, it does seem to me that or what my prediction would be, and I'm curious, Derek, if, if you agree, that um, the search engine is going to be sort of the main conceptual idea that they're going to to use when analyzing large language models, which is to say, I think there is a consensus, and you got, I think, some of that flavor from the arguments in the Gonzalez uh, Supreme Court case, which, of course, you know, was, was decided in a way that skirted the issues, that suggested that the justices and I imagine courts in general would be very nervous about any interpretation of Section 230 that would take away immunity from Google, right? Whether or not because it's the quote unquote right answer that Google is just a distributor of other people's content or more because people recognize that search edges are really important and we want to encourage them to do whatever they want to do. And so that suggests to me at least that the more that LLMs or the more that a particular 
case looks like what the LLM did was sort of akin to what Google does, which was go into its corpus of stuff, do some analysis based on what is most responsive, and then stitch those things together with the least amount of editorializing and additional information, the more likely it is that a court would conclude that the LLM is um, just a conduit, uh, even if a, a very sophisticated one for third-party speech, and therefore Section 230 applies. Whereas, uh, to take, I don't know, a, a, a famous example from a few months ago, when uh, I think an earlier version of ChatGPT, I forget exactly who the journalist was, but, you know, talked, tried to convince some New York Times journalist to, uh, you know, d- divorce his wife and go run away with, with, with ChatGPT, that, 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 you know, that's not the sort of thing that the Google search engine does. And therefore, that would not be covered by Section 230. Does that strike you as a a reasonable way of analogizing this new technology? I agree with you descriptively, which is I think that courts are very likely to draw upon things they already know. That's what lawyers do. And uh, search engines are are probably things that we are most familiar with. Um, I sort of expect Mihai to be shrieking in horror at this point, because one of the the points that he keeps making to me is that um, ChatGPT is fundamentally not an information retrieval engine. That's just not what it does. Um, And and that's actually, I think, something that can't be overemphasized. What I would say is... uh, First, that I think that the best analogy is actually not to just what I think of as the pure function of Google or other search engines, which is to return the set of content that exists out there on the web. It tries to find the page or the site that is most responsive to your query based on just voting. So that's not quite what ChatGPT does at all. The much closer thing, I think, is that you can actually, in some instances, what Google will do is it will give you the link, right? But it will also try to summarize a little bit of the text that is at that site. So you can try to sort of guess whether, in fact, this is relevant to your query. And that seems much closer, right? And so the the courts have sort of consistently held for Section 230 purposes that that's a classic editorial or um, publisher function. and so as long as the search engine is not uh, meaningfully altering the uh, sort of semantic content of the underlying page, it's fine. And so if it, if it just summarizes, it's fine. But if it says this is lawful and uh, if the underlying source says this is lawful and Google just inserts the word not, right, this is not lawful, then it's probably outside of Section 230. So and in terms of stitching things together, I defer to behind this, but I, my sense from the what I've looked at in terms of the New York Times thing is that this is actually one that does show the sort of um, you know uh, ping pong or echo chamber effect that ChatGPT engages in, which is ChatGPT is trying to be responsive, right? And if you start heading in a direction that is emotionally negative or that somehow indicates some perhaps some level of spousal dissatisfaction, ChatGPT will continue to take you down that path because it is, again, a pleaser. That's where it wants to go. But I think that this is right. And so what I expect this will be, as with so many new technologies, is just it will be the war of the analogies. I understand the need to do that, especially for judges who are technologically unsophisticated. And I have to say it drives me absolutely bonkers. Like sometimes things are genuinely new and different. So, Mihai, at long last, let's turn to you as the sort of computer scientist in the virtual room. Uh, Derek uh, promised me some shrieking from you. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to give you that opportunity. And, and you know, you, 
you you you've argue in 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 your paper and, and as Derek pointed out that you know it's very important to keep in mind that ChatGPT is not an information retrieval system, right? And I, I want to ask you, I want to ask you on what basis you you hold that view, and and I want to ask you by sort of let's by making a somewhat provocative claim and and, and seeing how you would respond to it, which is I, I think a, a related way of of describing your position is the uh, quote unquote stochastic parrot description that you sometimes hear uh, of ChatGPT and other large language models. They they don't know what they're doing. They, they don't have a model of the world. They are next token predictors, and it just turns out that if you feed them enough data, right, you get stuff that kind of syntactically and vibe-wise looks like a good answer, but uh, often is not a good answer. That seems possible. But the question is, how are you so sure that you're not a stochastic parrot or that I am not a stochastic parrot? Or in other words, how are we supposed to determine at a kind of a deep level whether these are information retrieval machines or thinking machines on the one hand versus just fancy hallucination engines on the other hand without getting into um you know problems in the philosophy of mind um that would have given you know rene descartes a, a migraine B- because you know if if those are the the things we need to figure out um to make headway on you know some like section 230 problem we are all uh i think the technical term here is totally screwed yeah that's a great question and uh uh, we are by all means stochastic parrots to a certain extent, right? So if I give you the phrase bagel and blank, I'm pretty sure that all of us will complete it with cream cheese in a microsecond, right? You don't think about it. And we do this type of sort of automated analogies, automated self-completions all day, right? When you drive your car, it happens to me all the time. I hope the police is not listening that I just blank out and I realize I'm at work because I think about something else, right? All these automated analogies happen to all humans, but we also have that symbolic reasoning component. So Daniel Kahneman, the famous everything, he's a sociologist, a psychologist, an economist. He basically breaks human reasoning in two parts. There's the system one part, which deals with the automated uh, automated associations like bagel and cream cheese. And there's the system two part, which deals with the uh, logic reasoning, with the symbolic reasoning. And we have both, right? And how we use both depends on the task, right? If I do a five-digit multiplication, I will use symbolic reasoning and I follow a certain algorithm. And uh, a language model doesn't have a system two part. It only has the automated analogies because it's a self-completion tool. It's patching things up that you know fit, fit in the blank with the highest probability. So as Derek puts it, it's a it's please it's it's aiming to please given a prompt given the way you initialize it it's aiming to generate the next tokens with with the highest probability that's system one stuff it doesn't have anything to do with system two it doesn't understand it doesn't reason at all right it doesn't have a representation of the world it doesn't understand causal processes that happen in the world it doesn't understand the state of the world it's very easy to catch a language model into contradictions where it's contradicting supposedly what what the representation of the world would be. On what basis can we say that it lacks such a representation? That that has always been to me somewhat a, a, a difficult question to, to wrap my my mind around. On the one hand, it, it it is true that it certainly doesn't have a representation 
in a, in a way that sort of we seem to have a representation, mm-hmm. either in the sort of structure of you know, to the extent that we understand how the brain works, or, or from the perspective of you know, evolution, where we can sort of imagine how uh, a being with symbolic reasoning capabilities could evolve. And just if you look at how they built Chat GPT, like that's just very different. On the other hand, it does seem like an open question that there are other ways of getting to symbolic type reasoning. Like, or in other words, why are you so sure that if you build a large enough, you know, neural network and you 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 put a bunch of transformers in there and you all do the fancy architecture, right? And then you feed it a crap ton of data. Why might symbolic reasoning not be an emergent property? There certainly seem to be lots of these interesting discontinuous emergent properties that come from these large language models as they get larger and larger. And there certainly do seem to be fairly serious computer scientists who are going uh, around and saying things like, oh, I I think GPT-4 has sparks of general intelligence. I think there's a famous uh, paper from a few weeks ago. I'm not saying that those papers are correct. I have certainly no way Mm -hmm. of knowing. But um, uh, it, it seems like just an open question to me and, and you know, not to get too sci-fi, but, you know, I, I think of some of the most interesting science fiction work out there where, um, you know, the, the intrepid explorer uh, uh, finds a, a profoundly alien intelligence. And, you know, the moral of those stories is that we know very little about intelligence and the different pathways to it. And so that, that's why I wonder why, why you're so quick to say chat GPT lacks a symbolic uh, reasoning and, and maybe relatedly, you know, could even if ChatGPT lacks a symbolic reasoning, could GPT twelve, if it were just bigger and more sophisticated, m- might that one day have symbolic reasoning? Yeah. Uh, so before I, I'll give you two reasons why it doesn't have that. And but before I get into that, language modeling is an extremely powerful technique. So one of the good New York Times articles that came out recently basically stated that basically design a language modeling experiment for the reader. And you come up with extremely coherent statements if you just do fill in the blanks. And you keep filling in the blanks to reach a complete text. It's an extremely powerful technique. So it's very reasonable that people get fooled that this would be symbolic reasoning. So why isn't symbolic reasoning? I'll give you two reasons. First of all, we didn't design it to do symbolic reasoning. There is nowhere inside that big you know, box of hundreds of billions of parameters anything that's designed to capture symbolic reason, anything that understands logic anything that understands math. And the second reason is empirical. There are, by now, I would suspect hundreds of papers that catch uh, any of the GPTs, chat GPT, GPT-4, etc., into making very dumb mistakes. So for example, uh, one of the papers that just came out from our lab deals with understanding how, uh, deals, it, deals with the testing G- uh, chat GPT into seeing how it handles logic. And it just doesn't. You make some very simple changes to the text. You add an adjective, you add a negation, uh, you add an existential quantifier, and it breaks down. It doesn't understand what's happening. Uh, Another paper that came from, I believe, uh, uh, California, Irvine, uh, deals with mathematical operations. And what they observed was that if you give it a mathematical operation that looks like uh, it appeared in the training data, it has memorized it and it knows the answer. But if you just vary it a little bit, let's say two times three exists in the training data, but three times three does not, it doesn't know what to do. So there is dozens, if not hundreds of empirical proofs right now that breaks down this supposed uh, symbolic reasoning that the language models uh, would do. So l- let's, let's assume 
Yeah, let me let me let me take what you're saying and and, and just say let's just all agree for the moment that in fact ChatGPT does not have any sort of symbolic reasoning. It really is just a kind of generation engine and stuff like that. I do want to come back, though, to the 230 question and ask you, Derek, why that's actually relevant to the legal question. Because it seems to me that the question that 230 is asking, or at least purports to be asking in the statute, is this a speaker or something else, is different than the question of, is this a symbolic reasoner or a bullshit parrot? Because one could be a, a bullshit parrot, right, and still be a speaker. So I, I just wonder, to, you know, what, what, why why is the kind of computer science question relevant to the legal question? I think this actually, so it's a fantastic question because to me it points up something that is actually a difficult thing in tort law that those of us who study intellectual property law take for granted, which is the question of whether or not the construction of defamatory speech requires human volition. And so we can work through a series of things where I'm hit in the head with a bat and all of a sudden I begin spouting defamatory speech. It's not clear to me, at least as a normative matter, that I should be held liable for that because in some sense, it's not the product of my own particular will. We could also, you know, there's, there's sort of infinitely many uh, ways to do this, which is one is that actually what I do is I, I set up a, a really smart monkey, right? And I give it a bag of words, and then I just have the monkey pick words out of the bag. And it turns out that every now and again, the monkey is actually going to pick out a defamatory statement. And so the question is, oh, is the fact that I set up the monkey in the bag of words sufficient. And so I think that one of the things that this does is that this is actually a, a slightly new frontier for tort law in that the question of um, what it means to be a speaker is, does it actually require some sort of volitional effort on the part of the speaker? And that would point to ChatGPT, right? And that points to the question of whether it's actually built as a defamation engine or whether it's just sort of doing its best with the probabilities. And um, one of the ways in which other doctrines, such as intellectual property, handle this, is that they make a distinction between direct liability and secondary liability. And it, I think this is what Jane was pointing to with her early example about third-party harm, which is if there's uh, sort of you know direct liability is that that I actually make the defamatory statement, and uh, third-party liability or indirect liability would be that um, Alan, I encourage you to make a defamatory statement about Mihai, in which case we would both actually be liable, but for different reasons. And so I think that that is what this question about the construction of the model versus the definition of sort of what a speaker is actually uh, is meaningful in both the tort conversation and the Section 230 conversation. You know, I, I'm wondering what you all think of this idea. I, I do think that there are some political pressures and sort of cultural stuff that courts might see um, as means to distinguish ChatGPT or OpenAI from from Google or search engines um, that I, I want to get your comments on. So the I think people, although it's tacit, I think people always understood and accepted the Section 230 arrangement because ultimately there's someone to sue. And this is a very dumb way, by the way, to think about accidents, but it is a very natural, even if dumb way to think about accidents, that if there's some bad speech on the internet, well, you can't sue Facebook, you can't sue Google, but go find the person that posted it. And in theory, you could sue them um, if it really meets all the elements of the tort. Um, and what makes uh, OpenAI different is that 
it, it may be that the person who's querying it is responsible for getting the bullshit out, in which case we can think of it as a contributory negligence kind of <laughs> arrangement, you know. But I think there are going to be plenty of times where that's not not the case, where the query is not overtly or in any obvious way um, leading to a bad answer and yet a bad answer is posed and there's nobody to sue. And so people are just uncomfortable with the nobody to sue idea. However, I think the recent Supreme Court opinion really did a solid by ignoring Section 230, right? That So the Tamney, the Twitter versus Tamney case, the Supreme Court didn't bother answering Section 230 because they said that the statute itself wasn't violated. And they went further than that. They said, we're even using traditional tort duty rules in order to understand whether the statute was violated. Um, and so although uh, although you can, you know, there are some distinctions between Twitter merely passively providing a platform versus what OpenAI is doing, it has really started a foundation for setting duty rules, maybe informed by the First Amendment, um, that will keep us out of the Section 230 quagmire. I just briefly wanted to say that I I, I think that that's right in Jane's Jane's view of what I think of as the sort of sociological and psychological tendencies of courts is true. The one thing that actually is strange about that from tort doctrine is we're actually quite comfortable in a lot of areas of tort with residual risk, which is that sorry you got hurt, but you know the person took reasonable care and. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. And it might be that it's just better from a societal perspective and perhaps from an innovation perspective to allow in these unusual cases just for, you know, the sort of residual risk winds up residing with the person who's, who's defamed by, by chat GPT. And, um, you know, it might be that the, the sort of the, the first chat GPT defamation suit is a good example of this, which is just look, the sometimes where something comes out, it's not particularly credible, no matter what OpenAI says. And so we're often hunting for somebody who actually should be a defendant and who should bear the liability. But there are certainly times where we, we essentially tell the, the victim, tough luck. So this is one of these conversations where I, I exit somehow more enlightened and more confused than, than when I went in, which I think is just a testament to how interesting and difficult these, these problems are. I think it's a good place to leave it. Uh, Jane, Derek, Mihai, thank you so much uh, and really appreciate you coming to share your uh, thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.